0: that's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, Stay Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: State Farm, Bloomington,
2: Illinois. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at BP.com slash investing in America.
3: Hola a todos, I'm Wilmer Valderrama.
2: And I'm Mr. Raquel.
4: So, Wilmer, something tells me you're very excited for today's show, eh?
3: I don't know. Uh, where are you, Canadian now? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> hey. What is the A? (laughs) How can you tell? But yes, yes, I am. And before we dive into this episode, I'd like to share a little context for today's show. So when we were thinking about Essential Voices before it became a podcast, I wanted to make sure that we uplift the stories from unsung heroes in this country. We've been blessed to hear so many incredible stories these last couple of months. And our show will continue to be a platform for these stories to shine. We were heard from a huge variety of different kinds of essential workers within the framework of essential work. Something I often think about is our military and armed forces.
4: Oh, yeah. You've mentioned your involvement with the USO to me before, Wilmer. Do you want to tell me some more about
3: that? Yes, I'd love to. Um, This is some of my proudest moments of my life and my career. And, you know, you'll hear more in today's episode. But I'm actually the global ambassador for the USO, which is an organization dedicated to supporting active troops and their families. And the way I became involved was more or less a coincidence, I guess, but was centered around wanting to be of service to the folks who in turn serve our country. It began with an idea as simple as, how can I make these individuals laugh after a long day? So over time, I got more and more involved and eventually leading me to where I am now. And I'm honored and proud to be a small part of bringing joy to the armed forces. Mm,
4: That's awesome that you found a way to bring your skills and share them with a community that you care a lot about. And so this episode also comes at a particularly resonant time, don't you think?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I've been thinking about this community nonstop for the past few weeks. The armed forces are on top of mind these days, not just personally for me, but also publicly in the news, both with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and with withdrawal from Afghanistan. The latter actually played a big part in shifting the direction of this episode.
4: Yeah, it did, because we recorded our conversation with our essential worker, Tim, before the withdrawal, and we wanted to know at the time how veteran services were impacted by the pandemic. Tim is a veteran himself and works at a firm called Veterans Guardian that assists veterans with their disability claims with the VA.
3: And after this conversation with Tim, I was inspired and also thought a lot about who could we talk to in a roundtable that would honor Tim's story and service. And with the withdrawal occurring in real time, I felt lucky that I've created some amazing friendships and collaborative relationships with individuals working to advocate for armed forces in the decade and a half, almost two decades that I've been working with the USO. This man that I had folks I could talk to about what's really going on. One of these incredible friends of mine is Jane Horton, who is a Gold Star wife, has worked in the Pentagon as a Special Assistant to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and as a Senior Advisor to the Secretary of Defense. We spoke to Jane after the withdrawal and learned about her own service in Afghanistan, along with how this withdrawal is impacting the community in profound ways.
4: I'm really looking forward to jumping into the stories today.
3: Yeah, me too. So let's dive in. Tim's story starts right now. Tim, thank you very much. Uh, First of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for everything you've done for our country. You mind telling me a little bit about when was the moment you decided to sign up, you know, and uh, tell us a little bit about your military uh, journey.
5: I am a third generation Army veteran. My grandfather and my father were both in I did not have that feeling, you know, right after high school, I need to, to join the army. I wanted to experience the world a little bit. I ended up joining at 23 as a cavalry scout, It's kind of small man groups. We do reconnaissance. And I honestly, I loved every bit of it. When I joined, I uh, did nine years active duty, swapped over, did three years in the reserves and finished up there, just ended my term in service it was one of the proudest moments in my life. I felt like it turned a lot around, brought a lot of family pride, the sense of pride, the brotherhood. There's not one thing I would take back from it.
3: How did you adjust and re-enter in civilian life and what brought you to Veterans Guardian? Initially,
5: it was pretty rough. I was combat arms in the army. I came back to the civilian sector and it just felt odd. Kind of felt like, hey, I'm, this isn't my place anymore. Um, So starting out, I jumped on a lot of physical type jobs. Like I did tree removal, something to keep myself busy, my mind moving. And one day I was just on Indeed looking for a new job. I saw an ad for this place, Veterans Guardian, did a little research on it, came in for an interview. And to be honest, from that moment, I wasn't even told, hey, you've got the job. And I knew in the back of my head, this is where I have to end up. I have to end up here. It's turned my life around. Um, the amount of people we have helped here at Veterans Guardian is it's just amazing.
3: Can you explain the need for Veterans Guardian?
5: So there are other organizations out there. You've got VSOs, a veteran service officer. You've got the, the DAV uh, organization that helps them. Uh, while I will never badmouth any of them, a lot of times it's one individual attempting to help You know, a hundred maybe plus veterans. With us, for every veteran that comes through, we've got a little over 120 employees right now. So with that, it's not one person helping you with your claim. We've got an entire team. You know, I guess you could say it's kind of along the same lines of taxes. Mm -hmm. We all can file our taxes for free, just going to the IRS website download the forms you need, go for it. But it's time consuming. It's scary. If you mess up, you're going to pay for it. Um, So, I mean, that's what we're here for. You know, if you don't have the time or if you've attempted it and you're just burnt out, we don't want you out there suffering. If anything else, give us a call. We'll take care of you.
3: What is the number one issue that affects our veterans today? One of the big ones, and I paid for it
5: myself. Every Aspect of the Army's different, but especially in the combat arms side, if you're hurt, we are very big on suck it up and move on. That is not the case. We've had so many vets come to us that just, you know, maybe they were airborne, their knees, their ankles are shot, and they were trying to be a tough guy, and they did not go get it documented. Those are those really tough phone calls. It's sad because you're trying to help them, but there's nothing you can do for them because there's no medical evidence to help them out. So if anything else, if you are currently in the military, if you're injured, if you've had an injury, go get seen for it because later down the road, it's going to come up. It's going to be worse and you're going to regret it when you didn't have that medical evidence for it.
3: Is there a specific moment or a memory that reminds you of how important it is what you just said?
5: Oh absolutely. I did 9 years active. The last probably 6 months before I got out of that. I was one of those guys, hey, I'm tough, I don't need to go to to sick call. I'm just going to get out and, you know, move on with my life. And I had a buddy who was getting out probably about a month before me, and he just did not give me a break. He said, "Go get seen for everything. I see you get out of the chair. I see you, you know, you're only 30 something years old and you don't stand upright at first. So I listened to him. I went and got the medical evidence and it benefited me greatly.
3: You know, I'm assuming that's one of the things that makes you passionate is how much you relate to your own experience and how much you see yourself and everyone that needs your help. Right. Is that is that what keeps you passionate about what you do?
5: Absolutely. A lot of it is the education piece to it as well. We've had active duty people call in. There's nothing we can do for you while you're still serving the VAs for you afterwards but we'll give them as much info as we can because a lot of these people, for instance, 1973, there's uh, the national archives. So if you were in the military, you get out your medical records, go to the national archives and they're stored there. So if you ever need them, you can email, call, request them. 1973, that entire building burned to the ground. So every veteran who joined before 1973 if they did not take those medical records when they left, there is no medical evidence. That's an entire generation that just, you basically can't do anything for. And if nothing else, I just, I don't want to see another generation end up like that.
3: What specific challenges related to COVID-19 for the veteran community, in your opinion?
5: To be honest, um, well, this is in the close net I've been with. Uh, When I was in the military, We got so much preparation for uh, Murphy's Law. If something's going to go bad, just expect it to go bad. And it was almost like those, uh, we were kind of like, okay, this is out, just deal with it. And it was, I'm not going to say we took it too lightly, uh, but I think a handful of us did. You know, just kind of, oh, this is something new in the media. It's not that big a deal. Let's move on when in reality it was. I mean, for us, when it first hit, Every employee we had was physically here in the building. And at that point, you know, you got one or two that contract COVID and that's a huge fear. Are we getting ready to get the entire building sick? So then at that point, you got to start looking into how can we get people home working remotely? So, I mean, it was uh, all kinds of obstacles in the beginning leading up to it.
3: Do you have a moment specifically during the pandemic where you were proud how all of you gather around the issues and try to problem solve so your services were still available and you guys were still up and running?
5: Absolutely. When we had the scare, okay, we don't want to worry about spreading the disease around, we got with our IT department and in one day, less than 24 hours, we sent every single individual home with a laptop, set them up on VPNs. The entire company was working remote in one day. And I mean, we were a new company. This is something we've never attempted. Our IT guy actually called a friend who had dealt with it before and was like, what do we do? And he's like, well, you need about four months to prep for it. (laughs) It's like, that's not happening. We've got one day. So uh, we made it work. And I thought that was just amazing.
3: Throughout the pandemic, we were pretty much challenged to kind of find where do we find serenity? Where do we find our zen? Where do we find a place to recharge, to regroup? And, you know, what were the things that you did for yourself?
5: So initially, when the pandemic hit, it was pretty rough on me. Um, At the time, I was reviewing the majority of the mental health surveys coming in, screening, making sure, okay, yes, you fit the bill for this. And Turns out being locked up in your house, not talking to anybody, reviewing mental health surveys will take a toll on you. It got me for a while. And I've always been big on fitness. And obviously, gym shut down and it just, I, I hit a slump. And finally, I just, I got up one day, was like, hey, this is enough. Started up a workout routine out in the backyard. And a big one is reading. Reading. I've always been an active person. I enjoy reading, but it's like I will read for 15 minutes and it's like, okay, I got to get up and do something. And uh, being stuck in the house, learning to entertain yourself, uh, I'll say this I learned patience. I can sit and finish a whole book now.
3: So. <laughs> we all did for 100%. Yeah. What are the biggest misconceptions events have about veterans? And how would you like the attitudes to change both in individuals and in institutions?
5: Well, I will say this. I can't speak for everybody, but when I was in uniform, especially in recruiting, because you're out in the, the civilian population, they come up to you, they got a lot of questions. It always seemed to me that every civilian person I came up to just imagined, you know, we were all these war-torn people, live on the front line, eating our beans in trenches. And it's like, that's not the case. Like, yes, some of us do go do that. But I mean, the Army has hundreds of jobs. And out of that, you know, maybe 20 of them are combat arms. Especially, well, I'll say with the kids, like my nephews. When I came back from deployment, I moved back home. A lot of them were. A little standoffish with me, you know, they're like, this guy's been to war. Should I be nervous of him? And it's like, I'm a normal person, just like you and me, you know. You chose this for a profession. I chose that for a profession. We're normal people like everybody else.
3: What do you feel like our community can do more, like to really support the work that you're doing and amplify your message?
5: To me, it's just the moral support. When I was in Afghanistan, I mean, yeah, we had random people, mill us boxes of goodies, Thank you for this and that. But at the end of the day, it was just knowing somebody's got your back back home. I got letters from random people from churches just, hey, I know you're deployed. I want to thank you. And, you know, hey, I have no clue who this person is, but I feel so much better now reading that. To me, it's just the moral support.
3: And what messages do you want to leave for veterans and active service members? Um, You know, and what would you tell your younger self?
5: Take care of yourself. Uh, One of the big things when we get in the Army, you know, they, Army, our country, this is what comes first. And a lot of us take that seriously. And we will put our own health on the sidelines for that. Like, no, take care of yourself, please.
3: I'm grateful for your time, Tim. And thank you. Thank you so much for your service and your continuing devotion to the veterans and their families. So I appreciate you a lot.
5: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
3: Even though I was there for the conversation with Tim, hearing it again makes me very proud. During all of my time with the USO, I've seen this incredible commitment to being of service, which we've seen not just with Tim, but with lots of other essential voices on our show. Tim really embodies the spirit of service to this community and his country. And that makes me so grateful for my position with the USO.
4: It's awesome to see you connecting so deeply, Wilmer. And I mean, you said it best. Tim's spirit of service, as you said, is it's inspiring.
3: And when we get back from the break, we'll talk with Jane Horden, my friend and a gold star wife who worked in the Pentagon as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as a senior advisor to the secretary of defense
0: That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: When something happens to your car, you might say,
3: No! My car!
1: But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Jane, I am filled with joy. I have nothing but the utmost admiration, respect. I'm one of your biggest fans. I also consider myself a brother of yours. You know, for a little more context, Jane and I have traveled the world visiting the troops. She has uh, devoted so much of her life for, you know, the understanding and the support of all our service members and their families. And I'm so proud of the work you've done and what you've done for this country. Just kind of diving into it. How did you feel listening to Tim's story? I mean, what stood out to you? It was such an honor to hear from him and
6: to hear his old journey and what he does now to serve. And I think that's what stood out to me is members of our military love to serve and they love to serve America. They love to serve people. And once they leave the military, their heart of service doesn't leave them. So I thought it was very incredible to hear that after he got out, he wanted to go back and continue to serve.
4: Thank you, Jane. That message of service that you're alluding to was definitely felt throughout everything that Tim shared with us. And, you know, in the same vein of service, Wilmer, you're using your skills to be of service with the USO. So how did you feel listening to Tim's story? I mean, you've been working with the USO for a long time. So also, could you say more about the work that you do with veterans?
3: Yeah, I mean, what went through my mind is um, how little we really understand and how Connected, we are to the subject. So when you think about someone who's devoted his life to continue to welcome the ones he understands, it fills me up with joy to see that there's people like Jane and like him that exist, you know? So that's one thing that I kind of take from it is just to see how selfless he is, you know, but I also, you grew very frustrated, you know, because there is so much about it that hasn't been a topic, hasn't been a priority. And I think that there's there's a time that we are entering. There's a window for us to have national conversations. And, you know, I hope to God that we can continue to bring their sacrifice to the forefront and never make it a trend, make it a national treasure that we celebrate every day.
4: Mm-hmm. And then what about your personal work with the USO?
3: I, I was walking through an airport and, and two servicemen came up to me and said, hey, um, uh, You know, we watched the 70s show, you know, and we exchanged the DVDs of the 70s after a long day of doing what we got to do. And those laughs really helped. So thank you, sir. And I was like, are you kidding me? Thank you. (laughs) you. What are you thanking me for, you know? And ultimately... I called my team and I said, hey, imagine if I just, if apparently they liked the 70s show over there, maybe I can come over there. And I didn't have no idea how hard or how easy it could have been. And I'm like, what if I just went over there and, you know, went to one of the bases and just freaked him out. I'm like, man, what is Fez doing here? You know, and I, th- that was that was my perspective over there in my early 20s. You know, can I just go over there and freak them out and be like, what are you doing here? And I called the USO and the USO in two seconds booked me. And in two seconds, I was already in an airport and going over there and then, and my first show um, taught me so much about myself and what I was grateful for. It reminded me of why I look at the American flag and with so much pride and why I, I want to be of service, why I want to pay it forward, why I want to show up for them. You know, I think that I don't want to say we forget because we never do for us that don't. But I definitely want to say that through these trips, I've learned to really love Not just our country, but the type of individuals our country create. And and that that was really something I took from that work. And, And, you know, and just entertaining and seeing laughter and bringing a piece of home to them was a joy. I mean, that's the only thing I could do to serve. Now, I wasn't wearing the uniform, but now as the years went by, I took more responsibility, more of a bigger role in the USO and then... Now I serve as the global ambassador for the USO and it's one of my proudest moments. I remember watching Bob Hope right, as a little kid, you know, entertaining the troops and I I wanted to be him. You know, I just wanted to be on stage like him.
4: Mm, That's really beautiful. Your message of wanting to serve and be of service, using your skills and your talents to bring smiles on people's faces. It really echoes a sentiment of service that's present throughout this entire conversation. Um, Jane, you look like you wanted to add something. Any thoughts to share?
6: No, I just love Wilmer's heart, and I'm grateful for some of the stuff that he's championing and leading the way on, especially some of the stuff he brought up about the perception of service members by some communities, but also the soul and the heart of them. And I'm currently near 7th Special Forces Group right now down in Eglin Air Force Base area, and I'm actually in the home of Sergeant First Class Jaguar Gutierrez, who was killed in Afghanistan Uh, less than two years ago. And so meeting his four kids, and I'm sitting here looking at a sign that he wrote his daughters. He has three of them and one son. And he wrote, one day they'll be warriors, my queen. Love Jaguar. And it was a letter he wrote to his wife. And so just, you know, getting to know even these heroes that have given their life for me and for all of us and warriors, like so many that Wilmer and I get to serve. And and get to meet and be a part of their world, it's such an honor. And there's never enough that I could do for them. And it's been it's changed my life to meet someone with the same heart, and that's Wilmer. So that's kind of my thoughts from that. And and yeah. For folks who may not be aware, could you explain what a gold star family means? Absolutely. So a gold star family is traditionally a family of a service member that's killed in combat. And so this family, their loved one, was killed in Afghanistan. So that came from actually World War II, historically, when families would hang up blue star flags in their windows. And so people would know who had a loved one deployed by the blue star that would hang in their window. And so when that loved one was killed, they would change it to gold. And that's kind of how the meaning of gold star came to be.
4: Yeah, you know, I didn't know what a gold star family was before speaking with you. So thanks for sharing that with us. And it sounds like being a Gold Star wife is really central to your identity and to your service, and that you're extremely proud of your husband's service as well.
6: It's important for Americans to know what a Gold Star family is. And I don't want them to know about a Gold Star family so they feel sorry for me. I want them to know that I'm a Gold Star wife because that is the only way that they're going to know about my husband who gave his life for them. And so if I don't represent him and if I don't give him a name and a voice, people will never know he existed. And that's Mm. why that's important.
4: You're honoring his memory and his legacy. And as a Gold Star family member, you've held multiple roles in the Pentagon and you advocate for veterans and their families every day. What would you say are your biggest initiatives when you're advocating?
6: My top priorities are doing the best I can for service members on the ground to ensure they continue the mission to keep us safe. And the best way that i found to do that and to honor our service members is ensure that they're taken care of, that their families are taken care of. And so by doing that, it ensures that we'll be able to preserve an all-volunteer force. Men and women will continue to volunteer to fight because they know their families are going to be taken care of in life and in death. And so for me, it's the greatest honor of my life to advocate for them while they're here to make their lives easier as they're defending me and my family and my freedoms. And then so they know that if God forbid something should ever happen to them, I will always be there for their family. And we as a country and our government will always be there for their families, no matter what.
3: We'll be right back after this break
0: That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex.
1: When you buy a new house, you might say,
2: Shut the front door! Winning! No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now.
1: But you actually need to say,
2: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. (laughs) No one says that anymore, but I don't care. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Welcome back to Essential Voices. You know, Jane, you and I have had multiple conversations about this topic I'm about to bring up. And it's a topic that I don't believe a lot of our national community understands specifically on what it could cause and ripples of consequences and how it affects all of us directly and indirectly and especially our military community. And that is the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, it's troubling. I've had some really dark moments about this. I think you and I have had some sobering conversations about this as well. But there has been plenty of coverage by the media and conversation about the war as a whole, you know, But when you see that coverage, I mean, what do we wish was being discussed? What do you feel we're missing in this narrative? As you know, Afghanistan is a very
6: special place in my heart. I've been there on six different occasions and just love the country and its people and deeply care about the mission in Afghanistan. And so the number one thing that I wish that our country would grasp is that Our service members fight the wars in which we tell them to fight. And when I say we our government. And so most Americans, it's kind of interesting. A lot of them don't equate their government with them, but we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And whether we like it or not, our representatives represent us. That's why members of Congress, our congressmen, are called representatives or senators because they are direct representatives of us who make the laws and the policies that our service members have to follow. So a lot of times the troops get blamed for things that they literally have no control over, you know, and they fight wars for a very long time and people ask constantly, you know, why are they in Afghanistan? Why did your husband die? What was it for? Well, that's a question that I often like to turn back on the American people because when I sent my husband to war, he was not my husband. I sent him as America's son. He was all of ours. And so the policies in which affected him and all of our troops You know, they have no control over. They go and they do what the government tells them to do. And that's the number one thing that I wish that Americans would really grasp is that they're just going and doing what they have to do. They have no choice over what they do. They have no choice over the mission. And so if we don't know what the mission is, we should probably start asking questions and getting involved as well. And so that's kind of one of the main things that's been on my heart a lot.
4: So it sounds like you haven't just worked with veterans and families here in the United States. You just mentioned you've been to Afghanistan six times, and you've been on the ground abroad. So can you tell us more about your experiences and the folks that you've worked with abroad?
6: Absolutely. So each trip has been completely different, but I've done a lot of work with Afghan war widows. So their military was our allies. And so we worked hand in hand with them. We trained them. We did a lot of work with them. And what a lot of people don't know either is that they were losing massive amounts of people in their military. So for example, over 20 years of war, we've lost around 2,500. The Afghan army was losing about 20,000 a year or so. So it was a lot. And so I was helping them come up with programs to ensure their widows and their orphans were taken care of. So I did a lot of stuff with that. I did some work with orphanages and Honestly, just learning about the Afghan people. Like, to be honest, you know, as military spouses, we send our loved ones off to war. But as most Americans, we don't know anything about these places that they go. We don't know much about Afghanistan or Iraq. Afghanistan's a beautiful place. Their clothing is beautiful. They wear these bright, colorful dresses for their weddings. They have beautiful beaded gowns. I didn't realize, I usually go in the winter. This year, I was there for the summer. There's roses everywhere. And it was so green. It was just incredibly beautiful sitting in courtyard, smelling the roses, drinking tea, listening to music. And and we danced in Kabul. You know, we danced in someone's courtyard and they did their traditional dance called the Tan. And it was just a beautiful, wonderful time.
3: Going back to what we were talking about, Tim spoke about the pressure for many of the soldiers to man up when they are injured, either physically or mentally. You know, meanwhile, the Pentagon is reporting a rise in active duty suicide rates. With this in mind, can you speak a bit more about the mental health of soldiers, veterans and their families? I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit more on that.
6: Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that up, because it's one of the most important conversations we have in the military community and in the Pentagon as well. Mental health is incredibly important when you're sending your loved one off to war, when you're fighting a war, when you've been through so much. It's something that definitely needs a tune-up, just like you need physical tune-ups. You know, just as we go in to get our hearing checked or to go get our cholesterol checked, we also have to go and get our mental health checked. You know, there's been a lot of uh, new initiatives on that. We don't really feel in the military community that anyone has really cracked the code on that. But as Tim said as well, you know, it's in the culture of the military to kind of man up because the number one thing that service members want to do is they want to get in the fight and they never want to leave a teammate behind. So they don't ever want to be told you have to sit on the bench or you can't be in the fight. And so that's one of the main hurdles we have to get over. Um, But to be fair in the past as well, like a lot of times when people have come forward with mental health concerns, they have been benched. So we're working on that to make sure that if people come forward, they're gonna still be able to do their jobs and get the health they need and do the best we can to keep our force the healthiest they can be and the most mentally fit they can be. I'm also gonna bring up something that's pretty new as we're talking about Afghanistan. I've been in the military community for maybe 15 years now and I've never seen anything like we're seeing now. Um, I've never seen my whole community walking around wounded whether they admit it or not. and this has added some pretty deep wounds on top of already a mental health crisis. And so there's a lot of people hurting right now. And I'm just hoping that the country and
3: we can all wrap our arms around each other and help each other grow and help each other heal. I also would love to add to that something that you and I talked about the other day, Jane, which is our somewhat and very unfortunate uh, inability to see the tide weight that we're about to inherit with our veterans as they return from Afghanistan after this mission. Uh, However you call the outcome of the mission, there are some consequences that are going to be felt. And I would love for you to help us describe a little bit of the sentiment and also what's to come, what we need to be ready for. We have not even talked about yet what's the next phase of this conversation. And that's the one that that really keeps me up at night.
6: (sighs) It's a good conversation, and it's very relevant and it's very much needed because everything that's gone on in Afghanistan after years of war, people have given up everything. Their families. Sometimes people are on multiple marriages. Sometimes they don't come home, as we've talked about. But this whole conversation about the war and and what's to come with that is it's unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. And people going from being tired already for fighting for twenty years to was it worth it? I'm getting asked that almost every day. I just sat in front of a different gold star wife about an hour ago. You know, English wasn't her first language, but she said to me, did my husband die for nothing? Do you think my husband died for nothing? I was just like, I'm not even ready to face these questions. Like, how do I answer her as she's taking care of her kids alone? You know, did your husband die for nothing? And so I bring that up. It's very deep. I bring it up because everyone's struggling with this right now. And it shouldn't just be the 1% that have served. The country needs to think about this as well. And they really need to look at if, and I'm not trying to steer people in one way or another. If you feel like it was, that's great. If you feel like it wasn't, that's your personal decision. But either way, decisions need to be made going forward because our service members deserve better than people believing that people died for nothing or this was for nothing. Well, then we need to stand up as Americans and we need to be heard because we here in America have a voice and we can make a difference and we can do something. And so it's our duty, I feel, to protect our warfighters as well and those that go on our behalf and to ensure that something like that, if we decide it wasn't worth it, doesn't happen again. And so with all of these questions being asked, you know, and with people feeling like what did happen in the end, you know, it's adding on top of what was already there. And it's adding a layer of hopelessness. And how do I put the pieces in my head together about everything I've done with my life? You know, why did I go to war? Why did I have to do this? Why did my family fall apart? Why did all of this happen? And when you can't piece together the purpose, it just adds on top of the mental health crisis that was already there. And so I'm deeply concerned and, you know, the other thing that I've noticed that's very interesting, it's it's really beautiful and it's really wonderful. But with most of the fundraisers I've been doing for Afghans and most of the stuff I do for Gold Star families and veterans, it's always veterans and Gold Star families that contribute or are the first ones there. And sometimes I do think, why doesn't the civilian community engage more? And one of my friends explained to me, she's like, it's because people can't relate to A service member that goes off to war and dies because there's so few or an Afghan child overseas that's mom is brutally murdered by the Taliban and father. And so I think just getting to know the military community more, getting to know your neighbor, getting to know people in your community and engaging and learning from each other because we think a certain way in the military community. So how can we learn from you and how can you learn from us so we can get to know each other better and do more for our country as a team?
4: So one thing I've been hearing you talk about a lot is service and healing and community and not just for folks in the American armed forces, but also for families in Afghanistan and other countries. You mentioned you've worked to raise money for Afghan refugees after the American withdrawal. So could you speak a little bit about the efforts to get Afghan allies to the United States and how to best support Afghani refugees once they're in the United States?
6: You know, I've personally been involved with getting multiple people over to America. It's been a very hard, honestly, horrific process. It's been very scary, very heart wrenching. Uh, Many of us that have been involved in this haven't gotten sleep in weeks because during the night here in America is daytime in Afghanistan and people are terrified because everything went so quickly and the Taliban took control so quickly. A lot of people didn't see it coming. And so... You know, people literally had to leave their homes. One of my friends, personally, I'm going to call her Jamie for today. I'm not going to use her name, but she's 23 years old. She held a very senior position in the Afghan government. And she's a wonderful friend of mine. She's incredible. And she literally had to leave. I had to tell her, you can't bring your mom or your sister. You can't bring anyone. Because I couldn't guarantee her safety. And I had to tell her, you have to go alone. So she literally left her country. The Taliban's taking a lot of people's bags at the airport. She left her whole life, lost her government, her dreams, got on a plane. She didn't even know where she was gonna go. You know, there were several different options where they were sending people for the first country. She ended up going to Qatar, Qatar. She was there for a couple of days, then ended up going to Germany, and now she's in processing in America. So it takes a little while for them to get vetted, processed, go through their paperwork. But she literally has nothing, like nothing, only the clothes on her back. And so it's one of the first times in my life that I've been really raising money, raising things for people because they've left everything they've ever known. And so it's also their dream to come to America. And I want to ensure that we give them a warm welcome. And I do all I can to show people that have been through the worst thing that a human can go through, that we love them here in America. We're happy to have them. And we still wanna learn about their culture and their people, and, and we're here for
3: them. I'm proud of the work that you do, Jane. I'm proud of the partnership we have. And I'm excited for everyone who's listening to this conversation to discover that there is another perspective that unfortunately it's not the invitation we're getting from media or news. When you think about the news when you think about people's opinions on Facebook, They're met with one size or the other. And I hope that through this conversation, Jane, um, and through your beautiful words about what it really was like, what it really is like, and the reality of what it is, that we can find some type of perspective and understand that, okay, maybe as we know it, at the very least, let me reopen my heart again and let me just really see how I really feel. My passion comes from a hopeful and exciting new horizon I see. And I see opportunity and I see a road map that we are going to continue to pay from community and all the way up to the top level. And I can't help but to think about what this all means for the next generation and what we can do as individuals today. You know, I would love for you, Jane, to have any words, any reflections of what I just said, but, you know, also maybe provide a little bit of light for those who are listening to you and understanding There, there are allies like you and I proudly call ourselves, you know, that are out there really trying to not just connect, but understand and move tactically into a place where we can all be more aware of one another.
6: hundred percent agreed. And just what you said as well to the veterans and military community that's listening, Wilmer and I are here for you always, and we're never going to stop serving you. We're never going to stop thanking you and we're never going to stop being engaged in the community you know, this country wasn't founded for people to sit back and just enjoy the freedoms that we have. Democracy is not a spectator sport. You know, It was built for people to get involved and to do things. And so this is a chance for us to all get involved as a family and do things to better this country and also wrap our arms around this community as our service members start to come home after years and years and years of fighting. And so I think it's a wonderful way for us all to come together on something that we're passionate about and help rebuild this country. Jane, thanks so much for your candor
4: today, for speaking with us so openly and for your time. Thanks so much.
6: Thank you. It was an honor to be here. And thank you, Wilmer, again, for facilitating this, for your leadership and for having this conversation because it's much needed and it's a beautiful thing. So thank you.
3: Wow. Even though I've gotten to talk to Jane both on and off the clock, (laughs) you know, I'm always just amazed listening to her speak. I mean, I'm thankful that she was willing to talk to us about such a difficult topic, especially when the wounds she referenced are so fresh. I also loved hearing Jane talk about her work with the Afghani widows and orphans. I learned so much today.
4: I definitely learned a lot from both Jane and Tim this week. Thanks so much, Wilmer, for having me facilitate this conversation between you and Jane.
3: Of course, I wouldn't have it any other way.
4: So Wilmer, what do we have to look forward to next week?
3: Well, next week, we'll speak with essential worker Blanca, a farmer worker in California, followed by a roundtable with none other than the iconic civil rights activist Dolores Huerta and lawyer activist Monica Ramirez, the founder of Justice for Migrant Women.
4: Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, MR Raquel, Alison Shaino, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman. Executive Producers, Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Tim Sutherland of Veterans Guardian, and to our thought leader, Jane Horton. Additional thanks to William Taylor and Mark Christensen. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion Lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member.